Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today on the show, we're going to talk about Joel and Ethan. That would be the Coen brothers. And the Coen brothers, you know, for decades now, have been one of the dominant forces in movie directing. And and their style is so elastic. I mean, Woody Allen is probably not going to make a movie about people shooting it out over drug money along the Texas-Mexico border. But they could make a Woody Allen movie really easily, and they, they sort of have. So from Blood Simple to The Big Lebowski to No Country for Old Men to their current Netflix project, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, we're going to talk not to the Cohen brothers, unless they show up, they might, they do that kind of thing, but to people who know them and who love their work. gambler he will gamble never more his days of stud and hold em, they are done it was long about last april he stepped into this saloon but he never really took to anyone Surly Joe, Surly Joe, Surly Joe. Surly Joe. Oh, wherever he's gambling now, I don't know. He was slick, but I was slicker. He drew quick, but I was quicker. And the table stopped his ticker. Surly Joe, yeah, Surly Joe, Surly Joe. That is the uh, actor Tim Blake Nelson, not previously, to the best of my knowledge, known as a vocalist, but uh, singing uh, as the title character in the ballad of Buster Scruggs. We're going to talk about the Coen Brothers' legacy today. We've got some great guests to do that with, including somebody who has worked on every single Coen Brothers picture. But before we do that, I have to tell a little story. I have to do a host privilege thing. I think of it, too, because of that song, because if you're kind of a Coen Brothers person and you hear that song and there's a character in Buster Scruggs named Surly Joe... You have to think about Wheezy Joe. <laughs> and like, so are these guys connected somehow? So Wheezy Joe is an intolerable cruelty. So here's my story. As many of you know, for 16 years or so, I used to be on a very different kind of radio station where I, I uh, hosted a drive-time radio show on a commercial radio station. And so the preparation for that was a lot different. I mean, we really hyper-prepare for these shows here on public radio. But, uh, you know, for three hours on the air and you're diving in and out of traffic and weather, and they'll kind of run guests in at you sometimes that you're barely, you're barely ready for. So on this particular day, I'm hosting the show and some producer says, look, uh, Spamalot is in town. It's playing at the Bushnell. They want to bring in the guy who plays King Arthur. And so I go, okay, fine, whatever. And so so they bring him in and like I think they hand me his bio as he's walking into the studio. And I'm talking to this guy for a while. And I'm kind of glancing down to the bio. And this is all happening live on the air. And so I'm glancing down to the bio, talking to the guy. And then in the middle of this interview, live on the air, I start screaming, wait a minute, I know who you are, which is sort of a pretty bad thing to be yelling at your guest while you're talking to him on the radio. Uh, and he, ha- he get this look on his face like he knew what was coming. Anyway, he was the concierge in uh, Intolerable Cruelty, which happens to be one of my 
sort of left. It's an underrated Coen Brothers movie. It's one of my big favorites. And then I got sort of excited and starstruck in a way that kind of derailed the interview. But that's what the Coen brothers can do for you, right? I mean, they just, over the course of 18 movies, they just managed to have kicked one or two tripwires in just about everybody, or maybe 100 tripwires in some people. The movies are incredibly diverse, but I think as you'll hear today, there's some interesting through lines, too. There are ways in which all the movies connect together, or as one of our guests will say, form a circle. Um, Adam Naiman is that guest. He's the author, most recently, of the Coffee Table book. It's okay to call it a Coffee Table book. It's a beautiful, heavy, lavishly illustrated, uh, gorgeous book about the Coen brothers. It's called The Coen Brothers. This book really ties the films together. You see what he did there. Or you don't, if you're feeling a little bit left out already at this conversation. Tom Breen is a film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus and a regular uh, guest on our show. A little bit uh, later, you're going to uh, meet the sound editor, mixer, and designer uh, for, well, he's worked. He's the guy who's worked on all 18 films. Anyway, he's coming up a little bit later. So I guess maybe to begin, Adam... You know, I mean, for, let's imagine that somebody's listening who just woke up from a coma or just doesn't go to the movies very much or, you know, isn't really sure whether he or she has ever seen any Coen Brothers movies. And so without rattling off their filmography, is, is there a way you can say what it is that we're – is there a, a quintessence that we're talking about today? Sure. I mean, you're talking about a very – sort of simultaneously ironic and cynical, but also sort of quite bleak and existential body of work that sort of dives in and out of different genres and periods of American history. We might say it's a body of work that on the one hand has all these incredible surface variations and on the other is very sort of deep and consistent. And it's also consistent in terms of its quality. So you have like, uh, I don't know, it's like that idea of a band that never has a bad album. Yeah, uh, You know, I mean, maybe a really short way to put it is, uh, and others have made this point, it's like they're kind of the Steely Dan of cinema, except maybe they're better than Steely Dan. But, uh, you know, they've just made these really terrific, uncompromising, weirdly commercial films on their own terms, the two of them together for 35 years. And sometimes they've really penetrated the mainstream and sometimes they've really kind of not. And, and they might be the Steely Dan of cinema, too, because one of the questions uh, that's been raised repeatedly about Steely Dan over the years is, do their brains kind of drown out their hearts? Is there a way in which, you know, their obsession with getting everything perfect in the studio and having this kind of mordant, you know, take on, on everything that they do, does it get in the way of them locating their humanity in their hearts? And, and Adam, fairly or unfairly, one will hear that about the Coen brothers well, sometimes. I'll, I'll quote Miller's cry. Crossing, what heart? Right? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that the Coens, you can, it depends on what angle you look at them from. From one angle, they are kind of heartless perfectionists. On the other angle, they're these ruthless appropriationists where, you know, they haven't had an original <laughs> character type or camera movement in their films. But then they're also deeply humane and affectionate filmmakers, whether it's the portrait of failure in Lewin Davis or the character of the dude in The Big Lebowski. And they're also a genre unto themselves. I think one of the many, many paradoxes and contradictions is how do you have filmmakers who on the one hand are so committed to this postmodern project of taking from other sources and on the other hand are so wildly original that they themselves are often copied, imitated, paid homage, paid influence. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's like at this point, you wouldn't mistake a frame of their film for work by anybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's not that long a list of American directors you can say that about truly. 
So, Tom, uh, we were just talking about Steely Dan and also talking about a way in which the, these films uh, and the work of the Coens becomes kind of a universe. Uh, the band uh, that popped into your mind, and, and I have to admit, I didn't see it coming, was Fish. Uh. <laughs> so, Tom, give us your fish analogy. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that Steely Dan is also an appropriate analog, maybe even the Beatles. But what reminded me or maybe what reminds me of fish is that uh, is, you know, the both fish and the Coen brothers, one, have incredibly devoted, almost fanatical fan bases where no matter what they put out, no matter whether it's a completely different type of story, different genre, their fans will, will go to them because the Coen brothers have have solidified their reputation enough as competent filmmakers, as as witty satirists, as also deeply humane but very funny filmmakers that you know their fans will return to them again and again. But Fish and, again, like the Beatles and Steely Dan, they create this this wealth, this incre- this universe of idiosyncratic, incredibly recognizable characters that when, you know, I think when people, when I think of Coen Brothers movies, I almost don't think of the titles first. I think of the characters as Adam, you know, so uh, I think Astutely puts in his book the kind of distaff characters, the characters that anchor these movies that represent this both weary and baffled and sometimes optimistic, sometimes despairing worldview. The the Lewin Davises, the Jeffrey Lebowskis, the H.I. McDonough's, the Marge Gundersons. I mean, these characters, they have such big personality, as Francis McDormand's character says in the in the Coen Brothers' very first movie, Blood Simple, that distinguishes them not just from maybe the, the side, the ancillary characters in the Coen Brothers' movies, but also from, you know, almost all other filmmakers working today or over the past 30 years. You can always, you can not only identify identify a Coen Brothers frame just by looking at it, but a Coen Brothers character just by their face, the way they talk, uh, the minute you see them, you, you know them and, and you love them. You know, I think for you guys, uh, cinephiles that you are, too, it, it is uh, things like the way that they shoot the movies. And, and Adam's book was really helpful to me in, in understanding that better. I mostly, besides radio, have been a writer. I'm the son of a playwright who was uh, very fussy about dialogue. I see that one of their big contributions is is the way these movies are written and the way their dialogue is written, the way that they use words. I think it's significant. This is an unusual collaboration where you have one guy who's a director, but sometimes both of them are directors. They're brothers. One guy is, you know, absolutely a writer and even writes uh, on other projects. And I think they kind of announced themselves to the world back in 1984 with Blood Simple uh, with, uh, well, let's just hear a little bit uh, of uh, M. Emmett Walsh uh, in one of those inimitable uh, and, and repeated uh, tropes of the Coen brothers voiceover. The world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, ask for help, and watch him fly. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. 
So uh, what you get in there, too, is uh, one of their obsessions, the Cold War. Adam will probably have a little bit more to say about the Cold War uh, as we go along. But but I want to talk to both of you about this, and I'll start with you, Adam. To me, as I'm getting to know the Coen brothers over the years and decades that pass by, I, I am just knocked out by the writing uh, on these things. I, I don't know where that fits in with your appreciation well, it, of them. It, it, it fits in towards the top, and it it's an embarrassment of riches both in terms of narrative construction and also dialogue construction. And not to jump ahead too far, but you look at a movie like The Big Lebowski where the dialogue is passed almost like a virus between characters Mm -hmm. so that you get lines not just repeated for effect. I mean, anyone can do that, but lines kind of migrating between characters. They hear it in one place, it comes out somewhere else. Um, They have an amazing affinity for characters who tend to repeat themselves and get stuck in these dialogue loops. And it turns the lines almost into pop hooks. You know, it's one of the reasons that they get stuck in your head like that. Mm -hmm. But on every level of writing, in terms of the way they construct their plots right from the beginning in Blood Simple, to the distinctive idioms and sort of dialects that they give their that they give their characters, and also their ability to sometimes tell stories without writing, which is of course a form of writing, right? It's a form of uh, of, of choreography and staging and and storytelling that you know they put into their scripts and then realize without dialogue. I mean, from a writing point of view, they 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 really are the total package, and they sneak an incredible amount of depth and profundity sometimes into really dumb lines. I mean, Lebowski's top of the top of the list for that. Well, I mean, actually, one of the things that I love in Lebowski, we don't we have a Lebowski clip, but not this one. But there's a moment where where Jeff Bridges gets into the limo with the other Lebowski and his aide, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he starts he does this kind of monologue that's I think can become famous as uh, I'll kind of paraphrase: "New stuff has come to life." But he's completely incoherent, and and he keeps going instead of like um uh uh, uh running around. Uh, um, uh, I mean, this all you know it might be, <laughs> it, and it is actually one of the most wonderful. Moments partly because that that kind of rat a tat tat George S. Kaufman stuff that we're pretty used to from the Coen Brothers. It's it, you know you notice it even more when it comically breaks down into a guy. Sure. Sort of. And I would just say sorry that every pause or botched line is itself a kind of precisely written line as opposed to I'm much sure. space much space for actors. So they often have some inque- wonderfully quotably inarticulate characters. Like they don't like nobody writes stammerers and stuttering and indecision like they do as well. And so, Tom, you know, they they are uh, on the one hand cutting edge, and they are on the other hand looking back. And and I always feel if you look back to bringing up Baby or His Girl Friday or movies like that, there is that kind of rat a tat tat dialogue. And I don't often don't hear it that much in things that purport to be you know glib and funny comedies uh, these days. Uh, there's a way though. I don't I don't know. Maybe I'll just open it up to you. Just say whatever you want about the writing in these movies. Well, I think that one of the many excellent things that Adam does in his book is draw a very clear line between the Coen brothers and some of their screwball comedy forefathers, uh, most notably Preston Sturgis, but also the kind of His Girl Friday kind of classic screwball, screwball comedy. And what those movies did, going back to the 30s, you know, to listen to, to Cary uh, Grant and Rosalind Russell talk, uh, it's it's one of the, the promises of cinema is that here is an, a heightened, almost idealized way 
uh, for people to talk to one yeah. another. It's not necessarily that they're saying exceptional things, but everyone always has the, the perfect uh, response at the perfect time, delivered perfectly. And I think what the Coen brothers do uh, so so mesmerizingly is, one, they have those chops to write that level of rat-a-tat-tat dialogue, but they also despise self-seriousness. And I don't think that necessarily is reserved for you know people of uh, a higher you know class or, or uh, you know people with power. They they just they maybe except maybe with the one exception I can think of maybe being No Country for Old Men and the um, the gravitas of the Tommy Lee Jones character. And I think the deep respect of the portrayal of that sheriff. Usually the people who take themselves most seriously, uh, the ones who think they are on top of the world, is, and Big Lebowski being a great example of it. The ones who try to pack their language with highfalutin language of authority. Uh, they're the ones who are saying the most incoherent babble, but it's delivered with such precision and such confidence uh, that it's such a joy to listen to, much like with watching a Coen Brothers movie, at the end of it, you think, huh, I, I don't really understand what it is that they said, but boy, was that boy was that fun to listen to. And then you, then you rewatch, you re-listen and repeat, and then you kind of dive deeper and deeper into uh, some of the themes that do pop up in every Coen Brothers movie. All right, so we've got, we've got the perfect uh, uh, clip to sort of... Um anchor what Tom just said. Uh, This is from, in fact, Intolerable Cruelty. Ed Herman is a defendant uh, in a divorce proceeding in court. One of his lawyers is George Clooney uh, as Miles. Paul Edelstein is Miles' partner, Wrigley. A court is about to be in session. They're kind of whispering the entire time, so you may have to turn up your radio a tiny bit. Family Court of 5th District, Los Angeles County, now in session. The Honorable Marvin Munson presiding. All rise. Have you sat before her before? No, no. The judge sits first, then we sit. Well, have you sat after her before? Sat after her before? You mean have we argued before her before? The judge sits in judgment. The counsel argues before the judge. So have you argued before her before? Before her before or before she sat before? Before her before. I said before her before. No, you said before she sat before. Well, I did it first. Look, then I... don't argue. I'm not. No, I'm... You don't argue. We argue. Counselor, you appear. The judge says. Then you send. Or you stand in contempt. And then we argue. Counselor, which you've done before. Which we've done before. Ah, but not before her. So, so there you go, uh, Adam. A little bit of a maybe a little bit of a play on Abbott and Costello, who's on first, but um, <laughs> but in its own right, a little bit of Marx Brothers too, almost. Yeah, Abbott and Costello, Marx Brothers. I mean, the the deeply scientific word we might use for that is it's kind of shtick, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's funny, and I mean, it also speaks to that that circularity, that you know, that idea that characters are kind of trapped in circles. They go around and around sometimes to avoid the point of actually saying anything. And yeah, I think it is often characters who either take themselves too seriously or else characters who are kind of just beyond reaching in their films that sort of tend to have these little these 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 little curlicues of dialogue. But I mean a movie like Intolerable Cruelty is one of the, the their purest attempts, I think, to channel that screwball sensibility and also what Stanley Cavell wrote about romantic comedies, which is the idea that the old romantic comedies were all comedies of remarriage, meaning that you'd separate these movie stars who are clearly meant to be together, put them through a series of tribulations, let them flirt with other people, and then realize that they're perfect for each other in the end. And I always thought it's a wonderful idea that Intolerable Cruelty is a comedy of remarriage that's literally about serial remarriers, right? <laughs> you know, people who divorce and undivorce and sign, pr- sign prenups and tear them up as a matter of course. 
So, I mean, again, each time they make a movie, they section off these little pieces of film history and then play with them. And Intolerable Cruelty, even though it's one of their glossier and more mainstream movies, it is just as annotated and just as sort of, um, you know, dense in its allusions as a movie like Hudsucker Proxy or Miller's Crossing. You know, Tom, um, one of the questions that I have a lot about the Coen brothers is um, I I think they play around with the distinction between comedy and drama about as much as anybody else does. There aren't very many of their movies, which I would just say, wow, just flat out drama. And I had the experience when No Country for Old Men came out of sitting in the movie theater. I was like a Charles Adams cartoon or something. I was just laughing really hard all the way through this movie as people started after a while to kind of look over in my direction and think, you know, what kind of sociopath is sitting here laughing. But it seems to me that, Tom, one of the things that, that, that is in them somehow is the idea that it's got to get pretty bad before we don't have some kind of comic take on it. Yeah, I mean, look at how they uh, how they portray maybe the most uh, villainous villain in the entire Coen Brothers of the Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem. And he's the goofiest looking guy in any of their movies. He's got this ridiculous bowl cut and he's walking in, in uh, 1980, early 80s West Texas. And he's walking around with this, you know, this canister of compressed air. I mean, he he is a, a silly looking person. And I think it's it's easy to to watch and laugh. Not that that's necessary. Not that the way the character looked was necessarily the, the source of your merriment. But I do think that the Coen brothers are aware, even in the way that they dress their characters, that there is uh, there is plenty of room uh, for well, this is something that Coen Brothers have been criticized for throughout their entire career for for mockery, for potentially condescension, for looking down on these these rubes that these expert filmmakers kind of maneuver around like chess pieces who have no idea what they're doing. But I think again, once you dive deeper into the films themselves, uh, there is both uh, the the you know the the comedy of 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 randomness you know of not quite knowing what is going to happen next and really the only way to survive that kind of existential terror of not knowing if there's any meaning to the world is sometimes to make light of it but also there is there is great great drama to their movies too even in the more uh you know d- deliberately comedic ones like raising arizona i mean i think that nicolas cage's hi mcdonough in his aspirations for a very stereotypically normal domestic stability uh, is not, it's not laughable. I mean, it's it's funny to watch him pursue it, but I think the Coen brothers really have a certain respect for an American kind of simple ambitions of safety and love and family and community. They just don't necessarily see that in the random and sometimes terrifying world around them. Before I let Adam respond to that, let's just play a little clip from um, uh, from No Country for Old Men. This, I think, is one of the really scenes that I was laughing at in the movie theater that day. Uh, we uh, now have a character played by Woody Harrelson, who's like some kind of maybe CIA connected, um, you know, hitman who might even hit a hitman, uh, and Josh Brolin, who's this uh, just average guy who's wandered into this uh, very messy situation. The Anton Sugar character that you hear them talking about, Sugar, uh, is this character played by Javier Bardem, this absolutely terrifying, uh, soulless murder machine. So here they go. What's this guy supposed to be, the ultimate badass? No, I don't think that's how I'd describe him. Well, how would you describe him? I guess I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. His name's Chigurh. Sugar. Chigurh. Anton Chigurh. You know how he found you? Yeah, I know how he found me. It's called a transponder. I know what it's called. He won't find me again. Not that way. Not anyway. Took me about three hours. 
Yeah, well, I've been mobile. No, you don't understand. What do you do? I'm retired. What did you do? Welder. Settling, MIG, TIG? Any of it. If it can be welded, I can weld it. Cast iron? Yeah. I don't mean braze. I didn't say braze. Pop metal. What did I say? Look, you gotta give me this money. I got no other reason to protect you. It's too late. I spent it. About a million and a half on whores and whiskey and the rest of it just sort of blew it in. How do you know he's not on his way to Odessa? Why would he go to Odessa? Kill your wife. So, Adam, uh, at the end of this movie comes a speech which you think is maybe the most grim and haunting of all Cohen Brothers' speeches lifted right out of Cormac McCarthy's novel. And, and this conversation certainly ends on a grim note. But I don't know. Can you talk a little bit? I, I, do you see that same current of humor running all the way through this uh, terrifying absolutely. movie? Uh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's this like alpha male pissing contest. You know, they're like trying to out macho each other. And it's a very, you know, it, 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 they're kind of feeling each other out. Definitely the line about Chigurh not having a sense of humor as his defining characteristic is in and of itself, you know, kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there's that rat-a-tat back and forth. It's just slowed down a bit and given a drawl, right? But it really has a kind of screwball shape to the way that they're talking. I mean, No Country in general is a really fascinating movie to look at through the lens of authorship. It's the film of theirs that they finally won an Oscar for directing for. Mm -hmm. And they also won a screenwriting Oscar the same way they did for Fargo. For Fargo, it was an original script. No Country is adapted. And uh, as you said, from Cormac McCarthy, they joked that all they did was hold the book flat to copy it, you know, (laughs) and that the dialogue was taken from McCarthy, (coughs) which is true, but only to a point. And there's all these little things. I mean, I talk about them in the book, but... You know, the haircut is one example of them imposing their sensibility on the material while remaining faithful. He's not described in the book as having a page boy haircut. He's not described physically at all, mm-hmm. right? And the blankness of the Chigurh character gives them license to make this little joke. I feel like No Country is almost like two really funny kids passing notes in class trying not to be caught mm-hmm. with just the really funny stuff. But also, they do things with the film that they don't rewrote McCarthy's plot. They don't change the story. They don't spare certain characters. Everyone who lives, lives. Everyone who dies, dies. But just tiny little changes, even to the scene between Moss's wife, played by Kelly McDonald, and Chigurh at the end, having her not opt to flip a coin, whereas in the book, the character allows herself to be forced to flip a coin as to whether she's going to live or die. These are seismic changes in the meaning of the material. Mm. And I love that No Country can simultaneously be a very reverent movie on their behalf and fully, totally theirs and original. Um, Tom, I want to jump on uh, a phrase, uh, uh, the phrase macho pissing contest or whatever that was that he just said. Because I think this is, an, to me, an interesting question about uh, about the Coen brothers. And it's the kind of thing that I think you'd be very interested in. You know, there's a, there's a kind of persistent maleness to these movies. And there's a persistent male point of view. And yeah, Kelly McDonald's a good character in No Country for Old Men. But let's face it, she's not one of the three main characters. You know, they've got some outstanding female roles in Fargo, Raising Arizona. Uh, intolerable cruelty, Hudsucker proxy, but I'm running out of examples. You know, is there a way in which these movies are male movies made more for male sensibilities, Tom? 
Well, I'll, let me see if I can work around to an answer to that kind of sideways. I think that you know we're talking about the the cinematic kind of inheritance that the the Coen brothers love playing with, and if you know every movie of theirs could be said to be a film noir anchored by a detective trying to unravel a kind of incredibly convoluted plot, you can also describe just about every movie of theirs as a western. Uh, I mean, almost every movie we've spoken about today takes place uh, in the Southwest. Or a lot of them are period pieces, uh, and I think you know the. The Coen brothers have managed to be that rare breed of both commercially and critically successful contemporary filmmakers who also have kind of final cut on a lot of their movies. And I think that one of the great reasons for their success is he was playing with that great American genre of the Western and all of the themes that come with it, uh, masculinity being uh, paramount to it. Uh, I mean, the I think Pissing Contest is, is totally appropriate to describe uh, that standoff between the Woody Harrelson uh, and the Josh Brolin characters. Um, but I think that the, you know, in everything from the relative, uh, the emasculation of the of the big, you know, Jeffrey Lebowski uh, in The Big Lebowski is is such an affront to the sensibilities of so many of the characters uh, in that, that movie. They, they see him as, as not, not being a real man, not someone who takes care of himself, who has a job, who acts in a, in a stereotypically manly way. Um, but I do think that the, you know, Coen brother and also a serious man, you know, one that hasn't come up yet, but one set in uh, early 80s uh, Minnesota about a, a math professor kind of undergoing a variety of, of crises, one around his his masculinity. I do think that, you know, one element of the Coen brothers filmography that does make me a little bit queasy is the way that they kind of constantly include little digs and sometimes very big digs uh, into their homosexual characters. And that goes from the very, very first movies all the way up through Hail Caesar. I mean, one of the bigger punchlines is this joke about the the ridiculous main character played by George Clooney uh, being in an illicit uh, homosexual affair. And even though I get that, you know, the Coen brothers maintain a certain level of ironic distance uh, from any character to the extent that you can say that they're just making fun of making fun of that, you know, of, of, of gay people. But I do think that the Coen brothers do rely quite a bit on um, kind of a little bit of having their cake and eating too, saying we're not as invested in the American stereotype of the you know John Wayne masculine figure, and yet we certainly do love putting those characters in the middle of our movies and making fun of those who do not conform to the mold. I, 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 I have, you know, you know what, Adam? I, he's opened up a Pandora's box here, which we're going to have to get back to just because. But I've totally screwed up the clock for this show. I've got to just grab a break here, Adam. Hang on to your thought. When we come back, we are going to listen to a conversation with uh, um, a longtime Cohen Brothers collaborator, uh, and then we'll come back. Uh, Adam uh, and Tom will be back with much more to say and not enough time to say it.
So we thought that as part of this conversation, it would be really interesting to talk to somebody who has worked with the Cohen brothers. And in this case, when I say that our next guest has worked with the Cohen brothers, I mean that about as comprehensively as it is possible to mean that. Skip Levesay is a sound editor, mixer, and designer for film and television. He's a six-time Academy Award nominee. He won the Oscar for sound mixing in 2014 for Gravity, which happens not to be a Cohen brothers movie. But he has done the sound on every Cohen brothers picture. That's sort of an amazing partnership. We're talking about a lot of movies over a long period of time. Is there some particular explanation for that? Do you just get along really well? I think that's it. I mean, I feel like it's a very lucky thing for me, and maybe they're afraid to look under another stone, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it is, I think we're up to 18 now. For people who maybe don't understand that much how a movie production works, and that might include me, my sense is that somebody in your role gets involved later rather than sooner, but maybe that's not true. I mean, do you have a conversation with the Coen brothers before anything starts and before the shooting starts? No, not really. And I think that's pretty much typical, at least for me. I mean, I try to catch up on what's going on. I read the script as early as the filmmakers will let it out of the, the vault. Yeah. And I try to do, you know, whatever research I can uh, with the Coens, we have a little discussion usually. I have visited the set a few times. I would say about half the times, half of the films. The reason why I like to do that, I actually don't like doing that, <laughs> but the reason why I force myself to do that is because uh, a lot of times there's some pretty unique uh, environments, unique to the film. And when you're there, you can hear it and sense it. And, and when they start talking about it, you can have some idea what they're looking for. So uh, aside from that, generally, after the film is shot is when I really get involved. Usually, Carter Burwell and I have a, a screening with them. We talk about the movie and what things should be music, what things should be sound, or th- what things should be both. Well, I want to have I want to talk more about that, but but let's go back for a second to the occasional visits to the set and the so-called unique environments. So, in the case of Buster Scruggs, I mean, you have you know, I mean, it's one thing I think to look on the page and say, see twenty covered wagons driven by or drawn by oxen. Is that a kind of thing that you have to start having a conversation at least in your head about, like? Am I going to have to come up with oxen sound? Absolutely. And one of the things that we've found over the years, I've found at least, uh, maybe this is selfish, but I think it's kind of sweet and wonderful to have newly recorded sounds for when you're thinking of that movie. So we try to record sound effects either in location or some sort of similar situation for each film. In this case, we had done True Grit, and we had a lot of recordings of wagons and horses. So we used, uh, Craig Berkey and I used a lot of sound effects from True Grit, which worked very well. Joe and Ethan were very happy with those recordings. You know, it seemed to me with Buster Scruggs that there were sounds that almost, I mean, they became more than simply accompanying sounds. They were almost use for to shift the audience's attention you know but but even like the the rope sounds you know in the James Franco segment the you know, there's just this you know really pronounced sound of the rope that's maybe being used to hang somebody I don't want to do any spoilers I don't know. So you're laughing as I say those things. Why are you laughing? Well, there was a very specific kind of homage which was given to that sound. It's 
a little bit of a tip of the hat, a cowboy hat, to um, a certain Sergio Leone movie mm. and the very opening sequence of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. Uh, I think actually that sequence was sound scripted with that opening sequence in mind. I want to. You were talking about music and sound. So one thing that I did to get ready for this show was watch for like the 80 billionth time No Country for Old Men. That's one where sound is sort of more important than music. I mean, there really is not very much music at all, right? Correct. There are about 10 minutes of music in that. Is that a result of a conversation between you and Carter Burwell, or is that a Coen Brothers thing? Like, we're just going to, I mean, the sounds of this thing are going to be the music. Well, you know what? I think it was, uh, in fact, I'm positive it was a design of the movie. There was an effort made by everyone to try to tell a story using as few sound components as possible, a very kind of high-precision sound so that the audience could be very focused on one or two things at a time. And we got to a certain point. We had our screening. <laughs> Only this time, Carter was shy to say, I don't know what, how I can help. I don't know what I can do to contribute. It seems like the sound effects and the dialogue it would be hard to support or be involved sonically without maybe changing the audience's focus or maybe the audience would lose concentration or suspense. So we had a discussion about that, and as I recall, Ethan was the one who was very keen on having some music to try, and Joel was the one who was saying, no, I want to try it without music. And eventually Joel said, let me see if I can get this right, he said, uh, okay, let's have music, but it needs to be as vaporous as the winds, <laughs> and it needs to arrive on the wind, be indiscernible from the winds, and exit the way it came in. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's the way I remember it. I think that's correct. Well, that's pretty tremendous. And, yeah. So Carter said, okay, those are good marching orders. So he made, I think there are six cues that are like that in there. Mm -hmm. Lovely, and a couple of them I find to be really beautiful. You all right? But they are very vaporous. And, and I think a lot of the score of the movie, so to speak, I mean, the drums might be, you know, Javier Bardem's cattle gun thing. Will you hold still, please, sir? And the strings are almost the sound of that suitcase or that satchel full of money being dragged through the heating ducts. The things that underscore action in that movie, in a lot of ways, are the sounds of that action. Yeah, and they're also kind of a love, in a lovely kind of abstract. They could be kind of musical sounds in a way. You know, you, you kind of preempted a question that I'm sure you get asked a lot. You said that Joel had one idea, Ethan had another, about the music in No Country for Old Men. I think a lot of people wonder, is it like the Borg Collective in Star Trek, where you're talking to one of them, you're talking to the other, or do they have very different and distinctive views that sometimes have to be reconciled? It sounds like it's more the latter. I, they do. I, they really have about a lot of things. They, they are at one mind and one voice, like the, the dialogue and the script mm -hmm. in general, and the kind of tone of the movie I think they generally usually see eye to eye, but a lot of times, particularly in music, they have differing opinions. They have differing opinions about everything, to be fair. 
<laughs> and uh, it depends. Like, I don't know if they arm wrestle or what or flip a coin, but uh, sometimes one is more forward, more vocal than the other. So this is a question that comes was suggested by somebody else, somebody who writes about movies, but I think it's a great question. And it has to do with the way that human voices are recorded and edited in Cohen movies. I mean, there are ways in which when you watch one of these movies – the voice can kind of jump at you in a certain way. I mean, go back to No Country for Old Men. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones's voice, Bardem's voice. There's just a way in which they sort of they pop out, out of there. Is there sort of a different approach to the way that the human voice is recorded for these movies? There are two things that popped into my head. One is that we tried to get recordings that we use for the movie from location during production. So we don't usually re-record very much, or we usually don't add very much stuff either. Although sometimes you, you've got narration. You've got a little bit of Tommy Lee Jones there. You've got, I think, Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona. Sometimes you have that kind of voiceover narration, or Sam Elliott in Big Lebowski. Well, you know what? The interesting each one of those that you mentioned, I think, were recorded on set oh, really? while they were shooting. Definitely, for sure, Tommy Lee Jones's narration in No Country was recorded on set while they were filming. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. Usually what they do, what we ask them to do, is to get a good recording of every line so that, you know, we don't have to worry about something during the post-production period. And then sometimes we'll replace that later for some other reason. But no matter how they do it, whether it's in the trailer or on a, another scenes set, they'll go and get some takes so that there'll be something usable. There's a beautiful kind of consistency that, to that. So everyone's in the same head and it all there's a consistency that comes from that. All right. Well, listen, it's been so great to talk to you. I mean, this really is an amazing collaboration. I mean, 18 movies, is that what you said? I think it is 18. I mean, you guys yes, never, you know, you, I guess you don't ever get mad at each other <laughs> or anything like that. That's, it's an incredible thing. To, you, it's almost like you're an extra brother, you know? I mean, they're going to have to work together basically forever. I, uh, we do kind of have, we're sort of at a slow boil all the time, so we, we don't yell at each other too much, but uh, there's kind of a healthy level of uh, anxiety going on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Skip Levsey, thanks so much for joining us. Sound editor, mixer, and designer for film and television. Six-time Academy Award nominee. Won the Oscar for sound mixing in 2014 for Gravity. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, those were some very very interesting insights. We're going to take a very quick break here. We're going to come back uh, with more of Adam Neiman uh, and Tom Breen. talking Cohen Brothers. We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below But it's a crying shame Oh, we'll see a lot of fish But we'll never clock a dish We ain't gonna see a day No day We might see some octopuses No day Or a half a dozen clams No day might even see a boy made, but boy maids got no cams. No cams. 
have to do some quick credits here. Betsy Kaplan is uh, bravely on the board, and we're uh, putting Don Breen on down from New Haven. So Jonathan McPants, who conceived of and, and produced this entire show, is down there in the Gateway Studios with him, making sure all that stuff works out. The part of Bill Curry was played by Scarlett Johansson. We'll be back next week with our usual diverse group of shows. On the show today, Adam Naiman. If you love the Coen Brothers, his beautiful book, The Coen Brothers, this book really ties the films together, is a, uh, a must. Tom Breen, film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's show Deep Focus. So one thing that we haven't talked about, and since time is limited, we should make sure we do this, it's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's a straight to Netflix. It's a six-film anthology film. It's so a bunch of little films uh, woven together somehow. So I don't know, Adam, where do you, how do you place this? This is in, in many ways different from anything they've ever done. I think it's quite strong. Um, I think it's very, uh, I, I think it's very tied to True Grit, and there's actually some narrative elements and even characters that are related to True Grit. It's very death-tinged Western, the way that True Grit is. Um, and I, I, I think it's quite strong. I think it's a movie that doesn't just play with the Western genre, but that's trying to interrogate some pretty foundational American myths by going back to the source of them. You know, that idea of manifest destiny or that that belief in ownership of the land or even just gun culture uh, and, 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 and dealing with it in a way that I think on the surface is kind of playful and funny and light and then underneath is quite heavy. I've seen the film twice. I wrote about it for The Ringer. Didn't get to include it in the book, but I think it's major work. How about you, Tom? So I'll I'll begin this with the disclaimer that every, really for the past four or five movies, every time I watch a Coen Brothers movie for the first time, I'm very disappointed. And then the second time I watch it, I absolutely love it. Now, I haven't I haven't rewatched The Battle of Buster Scruggs yet. So unfortunately, I'm still kind of in the the disappointed phase. But I'll tell you why I, I think that's so appropriate to the Coen brothers and why I kind of love it is that I go in with a certain set of expectations, you know, having loved Hail Caesar and then before that having loved Inside Lewin Davis. And I think, oh, great, here is going to be something similar. And then I'm slapped across the face with something uh, completely different. Now, I do think I agree that Battle of Buster Scruggs is quite a bit different uh, than any other movie they've made, uh, even though they've made many a Western. And that's because of the the anthology film format. As you said, this is a collection of six different discrete stories that are not connected necessarily by character or even by plot, but rather by themes. Again, a lot of the themes that Adam talks uh, at great depth about and, and with a lot of insight in his book, the uh, you know, predominance of, of randomness, uh, the kind of circularity of the universe, the absurdity, but also kind of inevitable inevitability of violence. I do think that the anthology film format does not necessarily work in the Coen brothers' favor, though, at least what I look to for those movies. I love the long, convoluted plots that I desperately, you know, try to wrap my head around and never really can and watch the characters struggle their way through. When you chop the movie into, you know, six different parts, you don't get to kind of crawl your way through a Big Lebowski or a Miller's Crossing level of, you know, what on earth is, is going on here. I think also the, the Coen brothers do a fantastic job in their filmography of taking what may on the surface be stereotypes or kind of caricatures of characters and then elevating them through the humanity of their depiction, through the actual kind of depth of their of their feelings. I think in the short story format, not every episode 
worked that well for me. Not every character was given enough time and breathing room to rise above what, again, the Coen brothers are sometimes criticized for, which is just kind of throwing together uh, some some caricatures they look down on. I do think that this is another kind of fantastic entry in their examination of, again, those themes they love of uncertainty and all the rest. So, um, you know, Adam, the thing that Tom just talked about, that's a thing. For example, my colleague, John Dankosky, who is a great Coen brothers fan, says to me, but I hated Hale Caesar. And I say, I know. I hated it the first time I watched it. I watched it a second time. I to- It just clicked. You know, I could say the same thing, I think, about Lewin Davis. And, and that, that thing that Tom is talking about, too. You go to inside Lewin Davis thinking you're going to see a certain kind of Coen Brothers movie, and then you don't. And, and I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? The, the, they actually, you kind of have to watch some of these movies two or three times. Yeah. These films are made with a kind of rigor and attention to detail that I think demands and rewards repeat viewing. I also think that maybe it's interesting what what you're saying about the anthology format not suiting them. I think that's a good point, but I also think that in the same way that their filmography as a whole activates in quite a cumulative way, I think Buster Scruggs is a kind of miniature version of that, where I find the way the episodes are in conversation with each other, particularly the way they build on this theme of death and on this theme of mortality and even of a kind of acceptance. I think it does have the fullness of some of their other narratives just kind of expressed piecemeal. But one of the really great things in writing this book was going back to even films of theirs that I don't like and finding that in a way I do because when you make movies that are this simultaneously spacious and filled with stuff, the question of liking or not liking almost becomes immaterial. You have to reckon with them. And I don't think that in 18 movies they've made something that can be dismissed on a first viewing or dismissed on a 10th viewing, if that makes sense. There is always something. So that leads me into my final question. We don't have very much time for you guys to elaborate, and I'll, I know you'll want to. But And Adam, I'm going to stay with you for just a second, Adam. And, and So mention a movie that maybe people haven't paid enough attention to that you'd like them to go back and, and watch a, a second time. Well, I was doing this poll for The Ringer uh, where I write and podcast with Sean Fennessy and Chris Ryan. We were all picking our number one film, and both Sean and I had a serious man at number one. Okay. A film of theirs that I just love and which is, if you read the book, pretty important to the book even above the other films for me. And, of course, the protagonist in that movie, the guy who plays the the title role, has become an incredibly hot actor. He appeared in actually three different Oscar-nominated Best Pictures. Yeah, Michael Michael Stuhlbarg. He's fantastic in the series, man. All right, Tom, your turn. What's the the one you think people ought to uh, dig out of the bin? You know, I, I promised that I wasn't waiting for Adam to take his pick, but I was going to say A Serious Man. So maybe I'll throw in a very quick extra plug for A Serious Man, um, and then maybe I'll, I'll pick another one. But A Serious Man, I think the Coen brothers love to portray dreams. Dreams function in such an important way in almost every single one of their films. And I think as dreams as a way of kind of filtering the subconscious, kind of getting down to, you know, in these incredibly obscure and convoluted experiences of reality, dreams offer a little bit of insight Sometimes they're they're as obscure, but they do seem to get to the truth of the matter a bit more than people's actual experience of the world. I think A Serious Man does maybe the best job of using dreams to describe just what uh, this relatively, you know, the banal existence of this mathematics professor, uh, what, what he's up against. I think that some of them are kind of fantastic, in- including when he's standing in front of this gargantuan blackboard trying to describe the uncertainty of the universe. Some of them are just straight up horror movie, though, where I didn't know they were in a dream until, you know, he wakes up, including the 
assassination of uh, his brother. All right, Dineen's we're going we're we're to have to stop it there. Dreams. I'm getting worried about spoilers and stuff like that. But definitely look at Adam's book. He's got a beautiful picture of that shot Tom's talking about. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. Thanks for being with us. Fare thee well, my honey, fare 